Good morning, church. It's great to be with you guys. Uh, I, I thought about actually starting with a mask on. With a mask on. But some of you wouldn't think that's very funny. It's been a hard time to adjust to. Masks and other things that come with this time make it particularly difficult to adjust. I want to introduce myself. My name's Andy. I'm married to Kaz. We have three uh, young children, young, energetic, fun-loving children, Emily, Jono and Ben. I'm not a pastor here at Canterbury Gardens. I'm not an elder, uh, although I do look old enough now to be an elder. No, I'm just one of the preaching team. And it's my privilege to uh, bring God's word to you this morning. You'll occasionally see me also uh, showing up in the music team, playing my bass guitar and making mischief in Sunday school uh, when I sit with my kids. I want to I also give a shout out to our Sunday school teachers and say what an amazing job they've been doing in new circumstances. Uh, so thank you, Sunday school teachers. Uh, we really appreciate what you do and the job that you contribute uh, to the life of our church. If you're a regular here with Canterbury Gardens, I wanna say welcome. If you're a visitor, I wanna say a special welcome. And regardless of whether you are seeking God, regardless of whether you are just inquisitive about Jesus, or whether you have been involved in a church and regretted it because you've been burnt in the past, I wanna thank you for setting aside, uh, setting aside the time to listen to God's word and I want to pray that Jesus would be revealed. Our prayer is that God would be the one who speaks, not me, through the Bible. We hope that you, through this uh, exercise in listening to the Bible, we hope that you meet Jesus. It is our aim to make a big deal of him, not of ourselves, certainly not of me. So I'm going to pray before we begin. Lord God, thank you uh, for the time that we can come together like this. Thank you for your word, uh, which speaks to us uh, in a new way, in an irrelevant, uh, in an irrelevant way, uh, every time we open it and listen to it. God, I pray that my words would not be uh, what is heard today, but your words. Not my message, but your message. And may it uh, make an impression on our hearts as we listen. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's just recap where we've been in the first two chapters of Ezra. You will remember that uh, Israel has been captured and taken away by the Babylonians. When Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians, it was a horrible, bloody, horrific mess. And last time I was speaking to you, we were talking about that very event. And we spoke out of the, um, we read out of the book of Lamentations, how horrible it was when Jerusalem came under siege. And uh, if you think isolation is bad, you ain't seen nothing compared to what happens to a city under siege. Now they've been carried off to Babylon and Jerusalem has been left in ruins and the temple was looted and burned. But Babylon is now longer, sorry, is now no longer the world power. Babylon has been itself taken over 
by the Persians. The Persian kingdom has risen up and it absolutely dwarfs the Babylonian kingdom by a long shot. And so this guy that we met last week is King Cyrus, king of the Persians. And he was moved by God to allow about 50,000 Jewish people to resettle back in Jerusalem. Not just allowing them, but encouraging them and even uh, releasing back to them all of the temple treasures that had been looted out of the temple in Jerusalem. And so whole families have come back to Jerusalem with a huge amount of supplies. And we pick up with them in chapter 3 of Ezra, just when they're arriving back at Jerusalem. Chapter 3 is not a long chapter. Jason has read it for us. Uh, thank you, Jason. And we're going to see that the chapter falls into three main sections. First of all, the people unite and rebuild the altar. And they start to observe sacrifice and festivals, religious festivals again. Secondly, we see the work start on the rebuilding of the temple itself. The people unite together and they lay the foundations of the temple. And then the third section of this chapter, the people stop and they have this huge celebration because the temple foundations have been laid. And their celebration is loud. It is loud. I need to warn you that if you're reading this uh, chapter to your kids, the thing they're going to take away is that it's biblical to be loud in church. So let's have a look first of all at part one. Part one, the people unite to rebuild the altar. So the people have come back and they've settled in their homes. They're now gathering in Jerusalem and they need a plan. The... Temple rebuilding is the goal. That is the prize here. That is what they're all about. That is the thing that they've come to be a part of. But how to start? How to start? Who's going to be the architect? Are they going to have a design competition? Are they going to just scrape away the rubble and, and rebuild on the old lines of the old wall that was there before? Well, interestingly enough, prior to COVID-19... Uh, and all that has come with it, the leadership, our leadership at Canterbury Gardens has been asking this same very question. How to build? Uh, when is it right to extend our church building? What will the time be when it's time to uh, invest again in the buildings that allow us to do ministry the way that we think God has called us? And what typically comes first in that exercise is uh, a needs analysis and then some design ideas then a master plan, and then finally a detailed plan that you can actually hand to a builder and say, what will it cost to build this? And it kind of makes sense. You build a, build, you build a building from the ground up. Um, you start with the big things, and then you work your way all the way down to the little things. And, you know, when a, when a building's done, you might finally wheel in the pulpit uh, and put it in there and say, there, now we're ready. Not so. Not so with God's temple. The first thing they build... He's not the foundations, not the walls, uh, not the steps, not the, they don't even clear the site yet. What they build first is the altar, the altar. I find it so fascinating to see that this was done before the foundations of the temple are even put down. Before they put down stones, before they put down anything, they build the altar. And it seems to say something about their collective priorities. 
it suggests to me that the rebuilding of the temple was not uh, not just, at least for them, it, it was an exercise, not an exercise in re-establishing a nice building. It wasn't a sense of having uh, their identity wrapped up in bricks and mortar. This was not about the building. This was about their worship. Listen to what it says uh, in verse 3. It says, Despite the fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and they sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and the evening sacrifices. Now, I ask myself, why were they afraid of the nations around them? The answer is because the nations around them were enemies, were enemies of God. They knew that uh, God had promised this land to these people and they, the people around them knew that if God's people came back, they would expect to reoccupy the land. And so a, a Jewish push back into Jerusalem was not really a great thing uh, for the nations around them. This would be a little bit like showing up to build a church and starting with the pulpit. Or maybe just starting with the giant crucifix and then building the church off of the end of it. The altar was not really a key part of the structure of the building, but it was a key part of why they were there. These people came back to worship. And I've got to tell you, this priority has been a challenge to me. I've, I've found this challenging. Here are a people who have been forcibly taken away from their homes, from their daily lives, from their daily, from their culture, and they've been placed in a foreign land. They've had to learn a new language. They've been re-educated. They've navigated life in a different place. And when they are given the opportunity to go back, what do they do first? What do they do first? They build an altar to the Lord. They prioritize worship. There is an extent, I think, to which you and I can relate to this. Some of us uh, very recently have lost. Some of us have lost things. We have lost the opportunity to connect physically. Some of us have lost income. Some of us have lost business. Some of us have lost uh, the expressions uh, that we love to uh, share amongst ourselves. We've lost the company of our family and friends. But if and when God chooses to bless us with the ability to regather, what will our priority be? Will you say, at last I can throw a dinner party? At last I can go jogging with my friends? At last I can cycle? Uh, at last I can get together with my mates for a barbecue? Will we prioritise our church building? At last we can gather and make music. Or will our priority be worship? At last we can gather and collectively honour God. Many of us have lost things, but the question remains, what do we do with the things that God does give us? What will our priorities be? I've been wondering, when COVID-19 is over, if it ever is over, uh, what will my priority be? Will I try to claw back the things that I've lost? Will I try to regain the economic uh, disadvantage that's been suffered? 
Or do we prioritize worship with our finances regardless? Many of us are finding the squeeze uh, of these days really challenging. Time is precious, time, time is tight right now. We're trying to work, we're trying to do remote learning. Uh, every, every natural interaction that might have taken five minutes now has to be planned and takes 30 minutes on Zoom. It's harder to catch up with people. There's actually not enough hours in the day, but what will I do with the hours that I have? How will I prioritize them? Will I still prioritize worship? There is, I believe, in chapter 3 of Ezra, an example for us to follow here, to build from the inside out. These people didn't say, I'm going to raise funds and I'm going to have a building committee and then one day we'll have a temple and then finally when the temple is built, we'll have a dedication service and we'll wheel in the altar and we'll start worshipping from that point on. Uh Uh-uh. They started worshipping on day one. That was the start They started with the heart things. They built the temple from the inside out. They themselves were working on the same basis too. Heart first, appearances later. I wonder what it would look like uh, to have an altar in the middle of a building site or in the middle of a pile of rubble to have just built an altar and started, started there. It tells me that the heart of worship is the heart that worships. The heart of worship is the heart that worships. These people prioritised worship. It's what they wanted to start with. I pray that our approach to church life would be the same. That we wouldn't moan about the music not being the same and not being able to sing with 400 other people and all the things that we miss, but that we would prioritise worship and that we would also approach each other in the same manner heart first appearances later appearances secondary heart first so what happens after that they've built the altar and they've started to worship the way that God had called them in the Old Testament to worship what do they do next well the second block of this this chapter tells us they unite together to build the foundations of the temple. They engage stonemasons and they engage carpenters. They import cedar logs from Lebanon, just like King Solomon had done when he first built the temple. They have appointed Levites to supervise the different parts of the work. And the people are all contributing to this effort with their own money. This is not the first church building fund, but it's one of the early ones. And I want us to make one, really only one key observation out of these verses in the middle of the chapter. They all had different roles and yet they were all united. They all had different roles, but they were all united. Despite the fact that some were clearly in charge and others were not, some were providing donations and others were providing skilled labour and no doubt others were providing unskilled labour. This was a unifying project. Everyone was involved. Everyone. There is great ability and great potential in a group to succeed when they have unity of purpose. History records many, many examples, both good and bad, when human achievement has centred around unity of purpose. 
The Bible has many of those examples for us. And there's plenty of things that you and I can think differently about, I expect. Maybe one is whether church should be loud. But one thing that we can agree on at Canterbury Gardens is that we want to love and follow Jesus. That is something that we can and we do unite about. And again, I feel like there's an example for us to follow here in this chapter. And I want to, I want to shout out a great, let's keep going to you at Canterbury Gardens. Because for me, this is a point of encouragement. I see us uniting around Jesus. We have Jesus followers at Canterbury Gardens of all different flavours. I was going to say shapes and sizes, that too. Uh, but we have all different flavours of Jesus followers. And to be honest, I don't really mind. I don't mind if you're amillennial, uh, pre-umbilical, one-dimensional. You get the idea. There's, there's lots of different labels that we can give to each other. But unity, unity around Jesus is one of the signs that God is at work. And I'm, I'm so grateful for you as a church that we have unity around Jesus. Yes, we naturally break into groups and we have uh, people of our own ages and our own interests. But I love, can I tell you what I love? I love logging on to Zoom at quarter past 12 on a Sunday and, and chatting with people who I probably wouldn't have chatted to uh, if, if they were in my social circles. I would have allowed them to go and talk with people of their own interest group or their own age group. And yet, when we unite around Jesus, we connect. As this group constructed the temple, different tasks were allocated to different people, but they were united in purpose. Listen, as I, as I just close off on this point, listen to what Paul writes to the Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 4, he says this, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And then later on he says, So Christ himself gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ might be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Like the Jewish people in Ezra chapter 3, who returned to Jerusalem, like them, they were united around a building. God also has called you and I to unite around building each other up. Jesus doesn't require a temple anymore to be worshipped. Jesus now has his church, the people, and he asks us to build each other up. Those guys in Ezra chapter 3 were united to make a temple. Ours is to unite to make disciples. So I have a question for you. What's getting in the way? Is anything getting in the way of you uniting together with others to make disciples? What does that look like for you? Don't say COVID-19. Everyone's saying that now. Don't say COVID-19 is in the way. It's not in the way. It's just going to change your methods a little. But what is in the way? Is it past hurt? Is it fear? 
Fear of failure? Is it pride? I don't, I don't want to look bad. Is it feelings of inadequacy? I'll be embarrassed. Can I encourage you to bring those feelings, not to suppress them, but bring those feelings to God and say, God, I know what you've called me to, but I'm afraid or I'm proud or I'm hurt or I don't feel equipped for this. Whatever it is you're feeling, bring those to God and ask him to help deal with those feelings so that you can unite with others in the work that he has called us to do. Now, the fun part. Part three, the group has laid the foundations and now it's time to celebrate. This is where our kids talk came from this week. Verse 10, when the foundations have been laid, the priests in their priest-like robes and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, they were called, uh, just for an equivalent, that would be like calling them today the sons of Chris Tomlin or the sons of Hillsong. Um, uh, if you're an older person, the sons of the Gathers. Um, these are the musicians, the worship leaders, the song leaders. They all take their place in some kind of order of service that King David has scripted long ago. And they sing and they sing loud and they sing this. They sing, he is good. His love, in, his love to Israel endures forever. And there's this big shout, which can be heard from a long way off, because the foundations of the temple have been laid. And they're shouting. They're shouting for joy. But not everybody is shouting. Some people are weeping. And there's this word in there, there's the, in, this, in these verses, it says, but, and it's always a good, good word to take notice of when you read it in the Bible, but not everyone was shouting for joy. Many of the older priests and the Levites and the family heads, they actually wept. They wept because they had seen the former temple. Now, I want us to ask two questions here. Why were these people weeping? So what if they saw the former temple? What's, why is that making them cry? And secondly, how is it that the younger people were shouting for joy at the very same thing that the older people were weeping at? What's going on? How can one thing make someone weep and, and, and another thing uh, make someone shout for joy? Uh, this sounds like teenage music when it makes one group cry and the other group go, yeah. Um, first of all, let's ask, this, let's ask the question. Why were the older men and priests in particular, why were they weeping? Well, the implication is there. It's not explicit, um, but it's clearly implied that this new temple was never going to be as glorious as the temple that Solomon had built. And so by comparison, this seemed like a poor cousin. It seemed inadequate. It seemed like God's glory had somehow been diminished Perhaps it seemed to them that although the temple had been re-established, that somehow God was getting less than the best. God was getting a B-grade temple now. They were used to having the temple like a glorious mansion. And now, yeah, the temple was more like a carport. Perhaps they were forgetting that 40 years ago, while God dwelt with his people in the wilderness, 
There actually had been no temple at all. There had simply been a tabernacle, a tent. They've gone from a tent to this amazing temple and now they're going back to something less and they're feeling like they've lost. But perhaps, and I say perhaps because I don't know it, but I wonder, perhaps for them, the temple building itself had maybe become an idol. I'll say that again. Maybe it had become an idol. And I don't say that lightly. What is an idol? An idol is something that's created, that is inflated to function or to substitute for God. It might be an object. It might be a person. Maybe uh, for some it's an activity or a sport. It might be a role that you play, an institution or an organisation, an idea, a pleasure, a hero, your family, your work, even your work for the Lord. Anything, almost anything, can substitute for God. You know that something is becoming an idol when it is the thing that you turn to for comfort. Things that we think about, and I, I say, I could go without a lot, but I could go, never go without filling that blank. Whatever that blank is for you, whatever goes in that gap, you're at risk of that thing becoming an idol. And you can see why, that an idol can easily be a person or your family. I could go without a lot, but I could never go without my... Adultery is not necessarily denying God's existence. An idol may even be something that is good in its own right. It's a good thing. But as soon as we're, we're tempted to turn to those things for satisfaction or for comfort or for value, we are in danger of that thing becoming an idol. Excuse me. So I want to ask you, what do you turn to? Where do you go for meaning, for comfort, for satisfaction, for value for yourself? What is that thing for you? Your answer to that question is the, is the thing that risks becoming an idol if you and I are not willing to sacrifice those things to God. Can I encourage you with these words? Your life has meaning not because of what you do or because who you know or the family that you have. Your life has meaning because God created you. God created you and he loves you. That's why your life has meaning. You can be satisfied not by having stuff or even by having people in your life. You can be satisfied only by the one person who can supply everything that you truly need. That is God. We have value, not because of what we do or what we look like. We have value because God gave up his only son, Jesus, to buy you back. That is what gives you value. All these things are true, even if everything and every one that you have is taken away. All of these things are still true. Perhaps for these older priests, the temple had been an idol. I pray that 
we would challenge ourselves, that we would ask ourselves honestly whether or not we're turning to anything else instead of to God for comfort, for satisfaction, for reassurance, for safety, for value, for meaning. Let's ask that second question then. If, the old, if now we understand why the older people were crying, how is it that the younger people were celebrating, that others were shouting for joy at the same thing? What was the big deal about laying the foundations? We've got a few tradies in our church family. I've never heard of them having a celebration when they put the stumps down on the patio. When, uh, when, when the renovation has the foundations laid, I've never heard of a repinning party or an underpinning party, I should say. Um, when was the last time you ever heard of that? It doesn't happen. I think after we have listened to chapter three of Ezra and we've listened to what these people were there for, I think we know now that the, the foundations of the temple were not, it wasn't really about the stones. These foundations had significance. They represented ultimately God's promise and God's peace. They represented God's promise and God's peace. And I wanna I want to draw your attention to five things, five things to notice here. First of all, the first thing, God made promises. God had promised Solomon when this temple was when his temple was first commissioned or opened or dedicated, if you like. He promised Solomon that he would bless this temple with his presence, but that if the kings of Israel turned away from God that the temple would be rejected and that it would become a byword. In fact, it would become an object of ridicule. People would look at it and they would say, huh, that's what happens to the Israelites when they turn their back on their God. And that is exactly what happened. That is exactly what happened to the temple. But the very fact that God kept that promise is the thing that gave Israel hope. We saw that in Lamentations, I almost said Lamentations, 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 no, Lamentations. We saw this in Lamentations. Uh, Men are not cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. God not only promised to reject the temple if his people rejected him, But he also promised to bring his people back from captivity. He promised to bring them back. Have a read of Jeremiah chapters 30 and 31 to get a look at those promises. And you can see God's clearly saying, hey, this is not forever. I will bring you back and put you into the land that I've promised to give you. And so that's the first thing I want you to notice. God made promises. Secondly, God planned to keep his promises. God clearly put things in place that enabled his promises to come good, proving that he was a promise-keeping God. And this gives Israel hope. God was showing them that he had a plan to fulfill every promise. Look at the way that he moved King Cyrus and and he motivated the Persians to just give stuff to these Israelites as they were headed back for Jerusalem. God planned to keep his promises. He put things in place. Third thing to notice, God's promises show 
his priorities. God's promises show his priorities. God actually didn't care that much for temple ritual and sacrifice. He didn't desire for his people to be undefeated in battle. But when they needed discipline, God gave it to them. When they needed rescue, God gave that to them. Because ultimately God wasn't there for the glory of Israel. God was in it for his own glory. God's motive was to glorify himself, not to glorify his people. It reminds me that God doesn't promise us what we want. He promises what we need. Because God's purpose in you and me is not that people would look at us and say, wow, that guy's amazing. That lady is incredible. That is not God's purpose for us. If that was God's purpose, I don't think I would have this face and this body. No, God's purpose is to glorify himself. Himself. His purpose is to, for people to notice his work and to say, isn't God amazing? Isn't Jesus incredible? That's what God was achieving here in Ezra chapter 3. The people were shouting for joy, not because they were amazing, not because the Levites had done a super job, not because the stonemasons were awesome. It was because God had done something amazing. They were shouting to joy because God had done it. Only he could have done it. Remember the song they sang? He is good. His love to Israel, for Israel endures forever. They were celebrating because God had done something amazing. That's what they were celebrating. That's the third thing. The fourth thing. We're almost there. The fourth thing. God's priorities to glorify himself, that priority helps my perspective. It helps my perspective. When I see this as God's priority, it changes my perspective on everything. Business might be bad, but can I glorify God in that? Business might be really good. Can I glorify God in that? I'm in challenging circumstances at home, but can I glorify God in that? I might lose someone or something precious to me, but can God be glorified in that? Everything that God brings to my life is an opportunity for him to act in a way to bring glory to himself. That changes everything, doesn't it? Doesn't that change the way that we look at everything? All of a sudden, I'm not measuring my life by my super fund or my grandkids or, you know, the new carpet in my home, the grades of my kids when they do exams, uh, not, the, not the number of social media likes uh, that I get when I post on Facebook. Uh, all of those things fall away if my perspective is that God's priority is to glorify himself, not me not you, not anyone else, but himself. And the fifth thing, that perspective, God's perspective, brings us peace. This is a truly liberating concept. If my life is an opportunity for God to glorify himself, then my part is just to follow. My part is just to follow. Just like the nation of Israel, 
I might experience times of good and I might experience times of pain. I'll probably I will experience times of both. But we can have peace knowing that a promise-keeping God who has promised never to leave us or forsake us, he is the one who is in control. A promise-keeping God who never will leave or forsake us, he is the one who's in control. And so we can say with the same confidence that the Israelites shouted on that day when they were dressed up for church and all they had was an altar and a building site with foundations, we can say the same thing that they said on that day. He is good. His love endures forever. Thanks for listening, church.